Jade Software presents Beta and Beyond, the RegTech Modernization Podcast. Okay, hi everyone. Welcome back to Beta and Beyond. I'm your host today, Justin Mercer. First time taking the reins of this podcast, so it should definitely be interesting and definitely putting the beta into this episode. Today we are basing our talk on something in the tech scene that is 10 years old. I know what you might think, uh, anything even a year old can be considered legacy in the tech space, but 10 years, that is quite a milestone. Uh, and it's all about the uh, famous quote, software is eating the world by, um, by futurist Mark uh, Andresen. Uh, and uh, joining us today is um, Jay's Director of Technology, Tom uh, Hallam. Welcome, Tom. Hey, Justin. And, uh, social scientist, uh, godfather of Agile, Nigel Dalton. Welcome both to the show. Thank you very much. And Kiwi, you should mention, this is a uniquely... Uh, well, actually, Tom, I'm I'm a, I'm a refugee as well. I'm, but a long time ago, my family in the '60s emigrated to New Zealand uh, from the, the the grand industrial metropolis of Leeds in the north of England, and uh, very grateful <laughs> for them doing that. As generations of my family have benefited since. Oh no way! So yeah, I just it's probably worth jumping in and sort of explaining that yeah, I'm I'm also I guess a COVID refugee, having come from Bristol just before the the pandemic kicked off. So yeah, some uh, some a bit of a kindred spirit there, Nigel. Um, although yeah, it leads up all the way up north. Yeah, you're a southern Jesse in my books, but that's okay. <laughs> we'll get along just fine. And I think that's what's interesting about being a social scientist is watching these. Um, you know, they say history doesn't repeat, but it rhymes, or it echoes. I think is another phrase. And and we're seeing these mega trends. So we, my job essentially at a company called ThoughtWorks here in Australia is to is to take the time to look backwards see who's had these kind of social upheavals that Andreessen was talking about. How did they survive them? Who adapted? Who won? Who lost? Those kind of things. Because make no mistake, this is not humanity's first encounter with a transformative technology like the web-like software. You go back 100 years, it was all about electricity. We'd be, we'd be three electricity pioneers sitting around a radio, having a radio show chat about, oh my goodness, Electricity is changing everything, and it's no good. And and generational warfare would broke out. You know, my uh, tales of my granddad and not wanting to get electricity at the farm. You know, like oh, and that's where we're at today. So that's what I do for a living. Well, there we go. Three pioneers and refugees all in the same breath. Um, so I guess maybe to to start there and just to help um frame it up with our listeners. Um, Nigel, when that quote did come out, what what was some of the con context to to Andreessen's quote software is eating the world look at an incredible time in the world I think people forget really quickly if you go back 10 years we weren't really deeply engaged in Facebook in the way we are now mobile devices were kind of clunky gosh early iPhones uh, a lot of people still wandering around with with you know dumb phones rather than smartphones accordingly I was at a company called Lonely Planet at that time, so I can kind of ground my context around what was going on for us as a, a book publisher getting deeply disrupted by the world of the web. Now, we were yet to face the winds that Andreessen had so with such genius forecast would come, this combination of mobile, social, and the web and software powering the way. You know, we we kind of missed that, which was a sad instance for us as the executives of Lonely Planet, but uh, you know you learn a lot from your mistakes accordingly. And um, so that's a, that's a time you, people should ground themselves. Where were you in, in 2011? And we didn't 
real. I remember seeing the quote and going, oh, no, no, the, the web is all about hardware. It's all about data centers and faster and faster servers and more storage and getting the costs of that down and those kind of things. We, his genius was to see the coming together of social mobile and the fact that, you know, my mobile device today, I'd, I'd say the value of my phone today is 98% software, 2% hardware. Well, it's, uh, if I cast my mind back to 2011, I was surfing in South America, so I was probably as far away from that as possible, Nigel. But you, you comment there just around, you know, what is the, um, you know, what is being disrupted? Uh, I, I always think about that that clock radio. We uh, used to have a whole company out there, Radio Shack, that just produced the, the clock radio, and, and and now so many of us, it's the phone, but also that's also the CD player, the, like you said, the network device, the computer. Um, I guess if we we build on on that theme of of what's changed, what what have you in what industry sectors have you seen the most disruption? You talked about your time at Lonely Planet, um, and and what happened there. Are there a couple that really stand out for you over the last ten years? You know, some of the some of them aren't industries. Some of them are social concepts. So I think the family has been deeply disrupted by technology. Now, of course, I mean, a hundred years ago or longer, people were complaining about these this modern technology causing the distraction of youth. You know, they sit there with their noses in their device all evening and don't talk among. You know, don't participate in the piano singing. And 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 the technology was the novel. It was literally the cheap production of a printed book and. It was causing a generational conflict uh, at in, way back in the in the 19th century. In fact, so here we are today. I think the tech has disrupted family relationships, and some people have grasped it, and some people haven't. Who's got a, you know, I've got an older family, but you know, connected with WhatsApp. It's a WhatsApp group for the family of who's home, what's going on, or and particularly in these pandemic times, that's been really important to leverage in that sense. Uh, Every industry is is now a software industry. Some of them absolutely scare me. Senseless the vehicles, for example. Uh, I remember when the the E series Mercedes, I'm a bit of a car nut. The E series came out, and there was an advert, and I wish I'd taken a photo of a giant billboard. It was a hundred million lines of code run an E63. That was a very nice car. A hundred million lines of code. At that very point, I was never going to buy a Mercedes because that strikes me as insanity on a device that was only mechanical a mere 30 years earlier. You know, I, I like fuel injection, you know, with a chip controlling that stuff and not having to adjust carburetors. That's good. But oh my goodness, the safety aspects, all those kind of things. And you go to FinTech, you go to HR Tech, which is a space I'm involved in. Even science, it's had good sides and it's had bad sides. And the disruption thing is really about who's adapting, and that that's my kind of field. It is what are the what are the mechanics of adapting? What's the what is the dynamics of that? And and people kind of have transformation. Goodness me, it's a widely used number of your clients are probably in a digital transformation of some kind. Um, but they're messy. They're really messy. They're uh, I use this. I picked up this lovely word from a theorist called David Snowden, who talks about the, it's liminal, which is a, a, a description, it's not something from Lord of the Rings, it's actually a word which describes the kind of the chaos of transitioning between one state to another. We're in one of those eras now, and Drayson drops us in this liminal era 10 years ago where software started to eat everything and everything became that way. 
liminal eras are they're, they're chaotic and they're they're frightening and it's the caterpillar turning to the butterfly you know i was a curious kid growing up on the farm of course i cut the chrysalis open you know and, that, and that's what we do with these transformations of a capability in our companies as we go oh, well that was before we didn't really have a crm we didn't have an erp but now we've got global web online markets and we want all the benefits you get halfway through that and you go, well, this is hard. This is why is it? Why are people not changing their habits? Why are the salespeople not filling in Salesforce or whatever it is that they're using? And the answer is that it, the chrysalis is not some magical creature of you know half caterpillar, half butterfly. It's a it's it's ooze. You've got to decompose to recompose your business. And yes, you might get a butterfly out the other end, or occasionally you won't. So, having cut a few chrysalises open as a small child, I'm I'm familiar with that dilemma. But yeah, nothing, nothing will remain undisturbed by the current kind of web, social, commerce, connective economy. Something I wanted to uh, maybe kind of uh, ask you there, Nigel, just based on that kind of conversation you're having around the sort of the vehicle space in an area that I'm quite well acquainted with is uh, the idea of companies moving from becoming kind of, you know, quite waterfall manufacturing companies with huge, huge lead times to suddenly becoming services companies. So you're now creating a platform to build things on top of, right? So I was reading about Volkswagen and uh, they're considering renting out the self-driving capability of a car for seven seven euros an hour or something like that, right? How does that sort of sit with you, the idea of companies almost becoming platform companies rather than you get given a car and you own it, actually you just get given a, you know, a, a platform with some wheels on it. How does that sort of sit with you? It's not a new concept. I mean, it's really a matter of the maturity of the thing. You, um, you go back, I mean, nobody made their own electricity after the first kind of uh, you know, the original industrial revolution, you made your own steam because you needed it on site or you, uh, in time, soon enough, things become commodities, goes from novel to, uh, if you look at Simon Wardley's work around, he has a, a tool, which he calls a Wardley map, which just takes, everything's constantly changing. And if, if you, you know, we, we see these snapshots in time where it looks like everything's okay, we're at this point and everything's static. And that was part of Andreessen's genius as he's going, okay, I see the long picture here. Like he started life building Netscape and fell prey to the absolute dynamics of a, of a market controlled by mega monopolies. And um, so platforms aren't new, like generating electricity or generating heat and, and pumping, Edison pumped it around New York, you know, like, it really just doesn't matter when something becomes a commodity, you, sh you shouldn't have to do it yourself. So when AI becomes a commodity, I'll be able to rent it. And you've already seen that, you know, with recognition, you know, some of the facial stuff, some of the AI things. Look at the things we can buy from Amazon Web Services or Google today that even 10 years ago were fantasy. The, the capacity to rent artificial intelligence, whether it's as simple as kind of speech recognition or it's as complex as building incredible uh, a friend with a company called mass dynamics who are basically providing a platform for access for scientists that you that no scientist could have dreamed of having access to that technology and it's it's pretty hard to start to tell where the hardware begins and the software ends you know though it's really everything is kind of um, a, a combination of those two today so 
there's a question of ownership in there for me though right at what point do you not own your phone anymore is it still just the property of apple and you're just the person that happens to, happens to be feeding it information you know uh what where, where does that sort of line get drawn for you and do you think that's going to just become more and more blurred as well as we, we end, we enter the world of the philosophers now and you start and this is where social sciences i think are useful against all the engineering worlds. what is ownership you know did, did you ever actually own anything i mean my son, I mean, well, I've got aging parents and we're dealing with all of those things back in New Zealand and, and, and the physical goods, the real estate, the, the things that we think, dividing up the assets and thinking those things through. My son won't have much of that complexity because, you know, my Spotify library just goes. It's, mm -hmm. I don't own it. It's, and, but the truth is the con concepts of intellectual property are I was only really renting those LPs anyway. I didn't, I didn't own them. So what element of human satisfaction did you get out of having a physical object that was your license effectively to play Rod Stewart or whatever you had in the 70s and on your albums? And so this is where kind of getting underneath the concepts of what we believe that, and, and uh, is a lovely, one of the, the greatest human characteristics is, is our ability to share a delusion, a collective delusion. Ownership is one of them. I mean, it, it's gone, we've gone highfalutin already, haven't we? But software really has pointed this out to us that why would you own? Uh, why would you start from scratch to build an, an ERP? Why would you start from scratch to build a CRM? Why would you start from scratch with an AI system that was going to protect your company against fraud? No, rent it. It's all good. Uh, it, we have this, I don't know if you've noticed that, Tom, we have this bizarre obsession in, the, in Down Under here about owning stuff. And I think it might go back to the people who moved here from our home country in the 1800s who were a, a class of people disaffected from ownership of anything. And so they became obsessed with owning land and uh, owning, because that was freedom. It was associated with all the other things and self-determination that they never had. And it's it's really bizarre, but... I'm not as obsessive about ownership as, as perhaps some are. It's an interesting um, topic there just on, on ownership because quite often in, when we're talking to customers and you're talking to executives, there's a catchphrase, we want to buy versus build. But actually maybe the, that should be evolved to be to, to rent rather yeah. than, than buy. Absolutely. That, I mean, that is we use that phrase at ThoughtWorks. It's buy, build or rent. And, you know, if it's a commodity and the problem is solved, just rent it. Now, there's a risk goes with it, and I think, you know, you are exactly in the position in the world to articulate that risk for people, that if people rent from somewhere that's going to disappear, there will be risk, there'll be pain. And that's now the hard thing, is differentiating between who's a good person to rent that service from and not, because Andreessen built us a world where everything is connected. Like. Mm. How many microservices does the average sort of tech company now run on and are maintaining and hoping that the standards align? And, and that's that's really what I think. If, if there's going to be a sort of a, a giant outage, it won't be an EMP from an asteroid or some kind of event like that. It'll just be someone's microservice that we're really deeply dependent on that the, the software developer wrote in 2012. And, you know, they're, they're now retired on a goat farm and, Washington State or something, and who knows how that works, and the the internet will fall over. But isn't that that that's the classic piece, isn't it? When it comes to you know, I hear very often it's like, oh, we don't want vendor lock in, 
right but it's sort of like where you kind of have to at some point you have to hitch your horse somewhere it depends where your stack's going to be and or you write it all from scratch yourself but that you know there's just you know you don't benefit from any of the economies of scale there you don't benefit from the fact that you know you've got people in aws or azure that their entire job is to make this the very best thing that they can what we think um so uh, yeah what what's your kind of response to those kind of those sort of questions when you because i'm sure you'll be hearing them on a regular basis all the time and that's sort of my job is to to come along with a multidisciplinary group and chat to executives about that kind of thing Look, you, what you're dealing with is the core fears of those human beings. So you need to be a psychologist. You need to go and study Jung from 100 years ago, sort of around the same time as electricity, and understand what it is deep inside an executive that's causing them to think that way. You know, you go, I, I loved, I saw a tweet recently about, well, uh, I don't seem to remember in the 1970s anyone having a multi-mainframe strategy. You know, like, so, like I hear it so often, multi-cloud, you want to spend that much money staying neutral on cloud like you're crazy you're absolutely crazy put your energy and effort in with your very limited number of people you can hire these days because hiring's the sort of the big global crisis put your energy into that and see it's a multi-cloud no you didn't used to do it and a multi multi mainframe thing would have cost you far more than a, a multi-cloud strategy ever would and Really, you've got to get to what are their core fears? What are they? What are they trying to protect themselves against? You're like going too broad, and it just increases the surface area of what you own. And like, if you want to increase your risk around security today, then own all the things, and forget that you own three quarters of them, and uh, have a difficult time cataloging their health, or their security status. I'm a little bit more about placing your bets and staying engaged with where the vendors are up to. I mean, there's still a lot of cloud vendors that we we love their brands and know their brands. They're not profitable. That's a dirty little secret. And you've got to watch those things really carefully. You know, that I had this, my kind of take on the Andreessen decade was uh, 2021 through 2025 is like the hangover after the party because what unleashed wasn't a kind of a, an era. We, we all got drunk on the internet effectively for 10 years. Well, you know, there was a different JavaScript framework every two years that we, oh, we'll have one of that one. And oh, no, we'll have some, oh, we need React and all, all of these kind of things. And it's kind of like the equivalent of the hangover you get when you drink an awful lot of vodka cruises. So there's two kinds of hangover in the world. There's the got drunk really quickly Drink. Uh, you know what? I think New Zealand invented the vodka cruiser. That's your trivial fact for the day. The, the you know the ready to drink, colours not found in nature, uh, vodka soft drink. Man, you get you watch the teenagers get get done in on that, and it's not pleasant the next day. You get you get hung over from a, a good Shiraz or some craft beer. It's a different story. You feel a bit dodgy, but you're not. And and this is the software problem is we have had a decade of vodka cruises, not craft beer, when it comes to software. So there's been no architecture, there's been no planning, there's been no tech strategy, there's been just, oh, I'll have one of those, I'll have one of those, I'm not drunk yet, I'll have four of those, and then, oh, I'm feeling very drunk. And that's the world's dilemma today. There's a lot of really poor quality, strung together software now running the corner shop you know they've got this attached to that and oh we need to really upgrade our just our simple e-commerce web maybe we have to go to shopify or something it's too painful for them to do 
So I, I think we're in fragile times and people need to think deeply about architecture and platforms and growing up and no more vodka cruises. <laughs> well, we'll, um, we'll pass on the vodka cruises for our Friday virtual drinks this week, Tom. Um, but um, Nigel, you did touch on um, hiring there before and, and in Andreessen's article, his, his original 2011 article, he, he closes with three challenges, financial headwinds, skill shortages, and proving worth. Um, it sounds like one of those is still here today as a, as a challenge around recruitment, but you've touched on the other ones of, of architecture. Do you feel like those challenges he referenced are still relevant today, or would you put a different mix in there? I think they, they were, he was presenting, pre I think they're 30-year challenges. They're a generational challenge now as we go through one of those liminal eras of kids at school starting to learn to code and we're still dealing with an industry that's toxic towards women and underrepresented groups in technology until we we make that a more level playing field we're going to suffer those things and a lot of it does come from the skills shortages so uh, it's not an attractive job for a, half the population which is a crazy thing to have done and so we have to go offshore you know we have to go to markets where you know i i have a 3,000 army of software developers in ThoughtWorks China that I can rely upon to help with projects I'm involved in. But not everyone has that luxury. And, and it's not about the price. You know, that's the incredible thing. The, the growth of the global middle class, particularly software developers, is, is going to make the same, so the same price to develop software in the Ukraine as it is Australia now. Mm -hmm. uh, it's about the talent and where are we directing people. We've got far too many lawyers and not enough software engineers. And you know, that, that's kind of getting people encouraged to do it. And every sector is suffering. I, I see all the different sectors of the Australian economy, particularly government, healthcare, retail I'm working in at the moment. And uh, yeah, this the revolution has slowed, you know, because literally we're probably short 30 to 40,000 software engineers in Australia. Mm. Yeah, I know just at, at Jade, I think we've got about 30 positions open at the moment, hiring like mad, and I imagine a lot of companies the same, but is that such a long-term cycle that you might see a shift back towards more uh, offshore-type work? Or it felt like it was moving back to an, a nearshore model or an onshore model there for a little bit. I think it's going to be a blend. It's what COVID's taught us is that the traditional views of the workplace and then outside the workplace uh, mm. have gone. It's a it's a kind of continuum, a blended thing. And some of those people will be not in your country. Uh, what language they speak or what culture they're from should become irrelevant to you according. It's just about getting the job done. Well, that's the joy of software, isn't it? It's a relatively universal language. Understanding the job to be done is a little more tricky. And that's where I think the emphasis in the industry will go is really smart people, what we used to call business analysts effectively, understanding the struggle, understanding the problem, and then getting the right tools for the job out of the market or you know, building it if it's an original idea yourself. That's, that's really the magic now is um, get, defining the problem and just understanding the dynamics of the customer all and too many people leap straight into software as, oh, I'll buy this and my and the job is done. Mm. And that I think will be a big error that people make in the next five or six years as software becomes cheaper and cheaper. You did touch on there before a, a challenge you're seeing around uh, companies leaping in maybe without the bigger picture or the architecture in mind. Uh, is 
Is there a social side of that? You mentioned before trying to tap into what the risk is or the fear of the executive. How are you seeing that play out with that that top of art, of architecture? Is it that they're just being wowed by SaaS products and buying them as they come and not thinking about the bigger picture? Or is there something more in there? Merchandising, as the movie Spaceballs said, is our biggest problem. And so I, you know, I've met a lot of. I was the CIO at a pretty large public company, the real REA Group here in Australia. I met every possible enterprise software salesperson under the sun. And there's a good old joke actually about the difference between a car salesperson and a software salesperson is that the car salesperson knows when they're lying. And this this is the kind of the dilemma of software today is like they've got no idea that that stuff doesn't do that thing. And, you know, and one of the massive dilemmas at Lonely Planet all that my decade ago was we bought SAP. And it, because it had a, a global supply chain of everything from paper to books to storage, et cetera, et cetera. And so when a naive group of people with a little bit of money went to market and said, well, we need a better accounting system, that SAP salesperson sold them an incredible story of, oh, yes, well, our software is optimized to solve all of the problems of a global publishing organization. And let me introduce you to one or two of those people with first class tickets around the world. And uh, the answer was no, it was wholly unsuited to a business of the scale of Lonely Planet with revenue of $120 million, wholly unsuited, but no conscience at all. And in fact, I'm not even sure the salesperson knew that it wasn't a good fit. And the accounting system there was almost a competitive advantage because the managing of costs in book publishing is really, really vital. And being able to forecast, that's really, really vital. They all ended up running the business on spreadsheets as it always had been. And, um, Therein is a story that's repeated and repeated and repeated and repeated. So when you've got a class of people who are kind of don't want to lean into the software and, and fear software particularly, I think if there's a, if there was a, a, I had a magic wand and I could bridge one gap in business, it would be an understanding of how software is made and mm -hmm. how it works how it contributes to a business and i would try and get and i've always done this when i've been an executive try to get my friends in marketing sales finance the people team um to understand the craft mm. because it is rather unique it isn't typing the bottleneck is not at the keyboard mm. it's problem solving it's creative it's about compromise and prioritization and and gee that's a hard thing to teach organizations who perhaps value other skills and and we're guilty of it as technologists of hiding away and go, talk you know you don't need to know how this works okay just know that when i configure this it'll do that seemed like magic but so we didn't ask them to lean in but if we could go back in time to andres and he probably would have said that the extra piece of advice is is tell your mates how software works you know for goodness sakes we're all going to be dependent on it in 10 years time let them know that every time you make a feature you create defects. It's just inevitable. You cannot make features without defects. So you need to have good systems and you need to have someone you trust that you're buying the software from to fix the bugs that emerge when changes happen. Uh, know that every time you make a choice with software, you create a business risk because you're doing this and you're excluding that and it'll, you know, surprise may happen down the line and you're creating technical debt. That's my, that's always my master's, you know, essay question I would ask any technologist or a digital person is, can you explain technical debt 
to a CEO. Mm. Techno, you know, lots of my, I love working with always because a lot of my colleagues, like of Martin Fowler, are the pioneers of concepts like technical debt. And one thing hasn't changed since I worked in the 90s in big IT at, at National Mutual, which got bought by AXA, is the cost of owning software Back in the day, I remember the stats came out of someone like Forrester or one of those big people that 80% of the cost of software happened after you deployed to production. Mm. It was about change and upgrade and ads and moves and all the kind of stuff that you do. Well, I saw a number and I can't find the research again. I saw a number from last year. What do you reckon the percentage of cost that occurs after you've deployed to production for modern software? You know, oh, we'll just deploy some APIs to the cloud and the install ml.zip and it's all good. Um, what do you reckon that number is today? Half, maybe? It's all, no, it's still 80%. 80% of the ownership of total cost of ownership of software occurs after it's actually launched because it, the cost of change the cost of ownership the cost of upgrade oh my goodness i'm involved with some friends in and building an app a cool little hr tech startup we're just going oh my god how are we going to afford what we got we 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 made the decision to delay until ios 15 came out it's like okay we don't want to make this damn thing twice and this has got all the and and so ios 16 will come out and it'll have you know, email on the device or whatever the latest and craziest thing is. Wow, we we're going to have to write a check. And CEOs never get that message that work with people you can trust and that who care about the life of software. You look at how many apps are going to die in the app store in two weeks time. Because they can't afford to upgrade to iOS 15. It's kind of interesting there as well. There's a, there's a piece there for me, um, as I sort of mentioned um, before we started talking, an area of focus for me is sort of the DevOps sort of world and actually getting the buy-in across the organization, not just recognizing that software is being built here, deployed there, maybe tested for security here, maybe tested you know, for quality over there. That kind of the rise of that way of thinking where we need to have everyone with a seat at the table, if not in the team, so that we can optimize for the flow of software coming out. How do you think that's sort of, you know, because obviously that's it's not a new concept now, but how do you think companies are kind of responding to that kind of call to arms? It's really common now for me to see, for example, you know, the title of DevOps engineer, which to me just seems like a, a misnomer, really. But um, yeah. yeah, how how does that um, how does that sort of strike you um, in that sort of same vein? Yeah, this is the big arc that I've taken across my career. You know, at 57, I've been working for 37 years and not all of it always in tech, but watching the impact of tech on industries and, and societies and communities and those kind of things. So the really, I, I take the web as a sort of a, it, I know we've got industry 4.0, all that kind of stuff. It's, it is a bit. So I look back to see who's coped with a level of radical change in customers, in markets, and, and who coped with a, a really like a liminal period, one of those transition periods, who coped really well and what did they do to do it? And that's what that's how I became interested in where Agile came from. So I became fascinated by Lean and the Toyota and Honda and all those companies. And, un, and became to understand through meeting some of the, I mean, incredibly lucky to meet some of the pioneers again, you, you youngsters have no idea how chaotic the economy was in the 70s, the 60s and 70s as this global consumer boom and a country like Japan just trying to level up. 
and build the Corolla, you know, effectively, which we still have today. They were facing product cycles of 12 months. They were facing unbelievable fluctuations in exchange rate, in the cost of transport, in regulation to exclude them from markets like the United States. The volatility of their, they needed to find a way of working, a system of work that coped with it. And lean is a fundamentally a plan, do, study, act cycle. It's like I have a plan and check it out, check how it went and kind of, okay, I've changed the plan and, and, and alter, which became agile software development because as software ate the world, we faced the same chaos. The internet changed everything. It changed the knowledge of consumers. So the whole power base of the economy, people demanded to know where did this come from? And like they could Google the damn thing. You look at a, a teenager going into JB Hi-Fi in Australia to buy a set of headphones, knows more about those headphones and is probably worried about the ethical sourcing of the plastics in them than any poor sales kid on the floor could possibly hope to get from their official training. And that changes the power structure in the economy and causes chaos. I also expect supply chains to be instant. You know, I ordered something from Wiggle from the UK for my bike. If it's not here in like nine days, I'll be upset. When, when in the world history did we expect something to come across the world in nine days for 10 bucks freight? Like, this is, this is a crazy time. So, you know, we things have changed substantively in that sense. So look back to when chaos occurred, industrial revolution, electrical revolution, and the web. And so we all need to do plan, do, study, act. Now, what flavor of agile development you like, it doesn't really matter. I mean, I... I I worked in the 90s in software when Waterfall worked perfectly because nothing was changing. To be honest, it was a five-year cycle and we could analyze, design, build, test, and implement software over long, long periods of time. I often didn't get out of the analysis stage. And as um, Tim Lister famously said, it, like there's actually a sixth stage to Waterfall. It's analyze, design, build, test, implement, litigate. Because, <laughs> It never actually worked to the original specifications. And I think we're much smarter about that now. And I like the way software is modularized and come down into smaller explainable chunks. And the clever bits in joining it all together, which was the clever bit about Lean was the value stream and, and seeing the way the whole thing went from systematically from one step to another, all the way to the customer. I think that's how people are thinking, well, where does software and automation make sense today in that? And there's no stopping this consumer revolution, whether it's healthcare or government or whatever. I mean, here, the controversy over check-in apps. It's like New Zealand's done such a good job on getting people compliant with checking in with their phones and those kind of things. We didn't think that was possible before these crazy COVID times. Like my dad, 86, carrying an, an iPhone, probably with an enormous number of photographs of QR codes in it. But, you know, I trust him that he's at least done half a decent job of getting into the grocery store. That wasn't, boomers were never going to manage that five years ago. We weren't even going to try. It's, it's interesting um, as much of, as, a, um, I guess, a, um, the impact that it's had on a lot of people's lives around pan, the pandemic and COVID. I mean, small business owners, you know, people have lost People, um, I was listening to an interview with uh, Andreessen uh, June this year, a podcast, and talked about that the opportunity, this shock to the system has had in terms of behaviour and change. Uh, and um, 
entrepreneurs and executives now almost using it as an opportunity to try things that maybe they were thinking before. I know at Jade, we have moved to a hybrid way of working permanently, where we have a couple of days in the office, uh, the, the rest remote. Um, are you seeing businesses or executives in, in different sectors try things um, that potentially would have been unpalatable before or, or harder to push through because of, of COVID? Full range of responses. And like it, it really does, it depends on the organisation. And that's one of the, this transitional period that we're in, you're going to get that, a really broad range, all the way from, you know, Google and Facebook demanding everyone back in the office by September. How'd that turn out for you, Google? Uh, they're not going to do it till March now, but they're desperately concerned with the loss of productivity of people being away from the workplace. And they built enormous workplaces, to be fair. Like, gee, that beautiful Facebook HQ, incredible how much money went away. They're kind of out of waste if nobody's there. But it, um, it's just very divided. Now, people are, I can give you research for both sides that says productivity has dropped completely with this bizarre working from home. It's more like sleeping at work, but working from home model all the way you know, right through to productivity is improved substantively by giving people more focused time and less commute. Kind of depends as an economist where you load the cost of the what we call an externality of commute time. Who wears that cost? Because if the employer wears that cost, uh, then it's not they've outsourced that to the person who jumps on a train for an hour and a half to get into Bangalore. You know, it, it's um, there's no clear answer. There's there's genuinely research either way, and and it's exactly what you've done. It, it, the answer is a hybrid that you're testing and learning with. And if you're good at managing a hybrid in, in a geographic area, perhaps, you'll be good at managing a global hybrid. Mm -hmm. And then your next trick is to learn to work asynchronously. So what Andreessen and all the web engineers gave us was the chance to be almost synchronous. Chat, Slack, all of these things. I want an answer now. Mm. And we need to look back in history again and go, okay, how does a world where I put something down in the faith that the next shift will pick that up and work on it work? Because that allows us to manage time zones. And as much as I've always imagined writing a science fiction novel where there are only two time zones in the world, <laughs> and uh, bad luck if you live on the if you have to work on the dark side of the planet. But um, yeah, that that it's a killer. Like no question, it's very difficult to manage uh, teams globally when they're working in different time zones. That's going to be the secret art going forward, not about whether you have open plan and that's suitable anymore. I've been back to plenty of offices where it's we've all got in the habit of jumping on Zoom and doing this, and that's useless in an open plan environment. Just does not work at all. So what's the architecture of offices going to be? There's, I'm working with a company here, Future Space, to figure that out. And the hard part is, is again, that personal in Jungian psychology of the CEO going, I'm so embarrassed, I spent five million on a fit out yeah. only three years ago, and now it didn't work. And that personal embarrassment of not being able to have predicted the outcomes of an unprecedented pandemic are what causes the chaos. It, it also on the, uh, not just on the productivity and the worker side, it's interesting how that would play out in, um, in the customer experience side. So you're asynchronous, synchronously trying to deliver a, uh, a service or a product and make that seamless on the on the consumer side. 
Yeah, we're very impatient. That's probably the human characteristic that the web has played into particularly is our, our need for instant gratification and our worry when things take time. And I, I love the way IT is being co-opted to kind of reduce the worry factor. Okay, well, now I've got a brilliant Australia Post app that tells me precisely where my parcel is. Now I don't worry. Now I'm cool. I don't... and. and I love the the work of a guy, Bob Moester. So Bob Moester, he's the found he's the original inventor of the concept of jobs to be done that Clayton Christensen picked up in um, competing with luck or competing against luck. I can't forget the name of the book in the early 2000s. So Moester's the theorist, and he's a street fighting kind of entrepreneurial guy who came across this concept of understanding the consumer struggle. And he and it really is probably, I and mean, he should have been a psychologist, not a salesperson. And he just transitioned into if you solve a customer's problem, if you solve their struggle, you'll you no difficulty printing money at all because everyone's winning. But where all businesses go wrong is misinterpreting the struggle. They get the struggle wrong. And I, I think that's the thing with commerce on the web, for example, is the the struggle isn't to find out 50 reviews of you know, it, we're locked in again in Melbourne. I'm going to buy one of those done stationary trainers for my bike training. Sick of, sick of riding around the park. I need something intense. Or, gee, I found about 500 reviews of the Wahoo Kicker. Every possible thing that can go wrong with it and all the accessories I need and all those kind of things and find a great deal and get it delivered online. Then, actually, now I struggle. Where is it? Is it coming soon? Uh, like, is it? do they even have any in stock? Is it in the warehouse? Do they have an ERP that actually links the warehouse to the to the website? Have they got good software to tell them that, or are they just hitting and hoping? And those are the people really struggling today, where they don't have that software connectivity from the consumer all the way back. We see some classic disasters from Big Code uh, in Australia, where you know people were shopping on ostensibly websites only to you know, get all the way to the checkout when the actual inventory system clicked in to go, no, we don't have any of that item, sorry. Mm. Who? No, not good enough. So for the for the execs out there, um, you, you've touched on a number of, of great things like the bringing, you know, a multidisciplinary or a cross-functional team to, to the problem space, not just making it a, a technical one. The, the element of sort of trust there and um, trust both either in your, uh, you know, your, your partner you're using, uh, the, the total cost of ownership. Are there any other principles or key standouts for you which the executive should be thinking about when they're going into some of these ventures? I think, you know, you've touched on the, the diversity thing. That, that's diversity, inclusion and a sense of belonging are the secret weapons. Uh, of a modern business that needs to move fast, that needs to test and learn and listen and all those kind of things. I, it, you know, if somebody said, okay, what if I've got a million dollars, what should I spend it on in my company to survive the next five or six years? I, I'm sorry, fellas, I'm gonna, not going to say software. I'm going to say you need to invest that million dollars in psychological safety. You need to invest it in putting together a team of people who feel it's fine to call out to the boss that that's bullshit that this is not solving the problem. And I see the most money wasted and the most pain caused in particularly bigger corporations as they grow by a culture of, oh, the boss is always right. And it's not safe for your career to call out that actually, you know what, we've got a security problem 
in this app that we wrote in in 2007 and we really need to stop development on the new features and fix it because we could get caught out a good culture will will you know have the cto listening to that and go oh okay now we need to go and explain that to the ceo and the, and the risk and cost a bad culture will be oh god we can't tell the ceo that he's promised the brochures have already been published for a launch in january you know and that's what's going to crush companies going forward the human psychology because humans are capable of anything we've we've proven the software is coming along so fast it's configurable it's you can trust vendors to make you know put they, they're going to hire better security people and better engineers than you ever will so we're probably more dependent on buying stuff and renting stuff than we ever were start to understand your culture and your customer and 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 build that that's what will catch people out. I mean, there's some huge trends in tech that are frightening. Um, quantum, like there's not a password in the world that's safe from a quantum computer. Uh, it, uh, so we'll have to find the human ways around that in terms of understanding when we're being hacked and when we're not. I think um, IoT, I know, Tom, you're a connoisseur of IoT. Uh, uh, oh, my goodness, I just got I can't think of anything worse. I'm, I'm building this new house in Hawke's Bay in New Zealand. Not one single element of IoT will enter that house. <laughs> because I've been into too many houses built 20 years ago helping the owners try to unscramble little LCD screens that control the lights downstairs that they haven't managed to turn on since 2012. Well, I think also it's the fact that you're inviting several vendors into your home using components that they've bought the very cheapest they can or with admin as the password and then going okay well you know uh, you know and and now your home is part of a botnet you know so it's sort of like oh okay is that is that still a, a useful proposition for people or do people even realize that that's a problem right yeah it's a it's a real bugbear for me that those sort of commodity components going into people's homes and then not really realizing the risk I mean, so it was the 1950s and 60s where William Edwards Deming sort of laid down his, his his rules for how to run a good company based on his understanding of how the Japanese lean revolution was taking place. And like, go to those 14 principles, William Edwards Deming on the internet and just go, that's the company I want to build, where it is safe, where there's an emphasis on training, where there's there's not boss bossy bosses telling people what to do while the workers check their brains into their lockers and, and and all those kind of things and i think that's the that's the revolution that we can take and he one of his my favorite principles of that was do not choose vendors on the basis of the lowest cost they are partners for your company like you are betting your business on the software you're choosing today and you're an idiot if you choose the lowest cost one because you know they're not actually going to be able to make it if you do that, unless they've got giant amounts of venture capital. I mean, the number of people I know in that kind of big end of town of tech who've got grey hair like me from choosing a, you know, a content management system for an internal website, like an intranet, and the cost of having to get out of that because their license fees were rolling over and, you know, you just get ransomed into basically sticking with software you hate or the difficulty of migrating all your content it's the simplest of things that are now making business quite a lot more challenging so choose your partners really wisely is my best advice and get interested in how software works i kind of I, i'm very for all that i'm super optimistic about a generation coming through i, I call them generation f 
the the Fortnite generation. So we've got a generation of 20 year olds today who've socialized and learned with computer gaming that's so far from the spaces at the fish and chip shop that in Dinsdale that I would, would have sort of tried out and learned how to game on. These kids are collaborative, they're strategic, they're fast thinking, they're natural real-time learners. You know, they'll watch, they'll watch Fortnite on YouTube as equally as they'll play Fortnite and both are playing Fortnite. Now imagine a world where we've got people who, are, who think learning about how to do something is the same as doing something in a workplace. What sort of power will that bring us? But uh, they're still 10 years away from any kind of authority in our businesses. They know how software works, you know, and, and they know how to work in multidisciplinary teams. And they, they, under, they got this intuition that I see having a 20-year-old and his mates that is, is not exist in my generation of 50-year-olds and 60-year-olds. And so I'm pretty optimistic. If we don't stuff the planet up, they'll do a great job in the 2020s. Nigel, I see from your um, your bio, bio, you're involved in a couple of charities, Orange Sky Australia and um, Flying Robot School. Yes, I, I think you get to a certain age and you realise that, uh, you know, I, and I think access to technology and access to services is a, is a giant issue socially. If I go back through 2000 years of history, all of the greatest disasters have occurred when we've got too big a gap between rich and poor. I lived in America for nearly five years and watched the beginning of this, like they're unquestionably going to be civil war and America will split as a country into multiple things. And I don't think that necessarily needs to happen. I point people to an essay by Sir John Glubb from the seventies, which is called the fate of empires. And it's the really the original source of that thing where every every society has this 240 year epoch kind of with broken into multiple stages, the last of which is called bread and circuses, where in, in tipping a hat to the Roman era, you know, just put them in the Colosseum and give them some bread so they don't overturn the government for goodness sake. Didn't work out so well. America is bread and circuses right now. Absolutely. The health crisis around COVID has, has proven that the haves and the have-nots are so far apart. And that part of my interest in homelessness and, and working with Orange Sky Laundry is around just going, you know what, those, those have-nots are not so far from us. And you would know Orange Sky Laundry's now got a New Zealand presence and is growing a New Zealand presence, which I have a very strong interest in ensuring succeeds because New Zealand has a horrific homelessness problem. Mm. And it's not the rough sleepers that are the, that little tiny tip of the iceberg. It's, it's people very uncertain about where they'll sleep tonight and whether that's a result of changing economic circumstances or domestic violence or family breakups. And it only takes two of those. Like people, they, they spend every penny they get. They don't have an ounce of savings. And this is the plague, of the hidden plague in our modern times. And you know, you ask the young people who work for you, for example, if they lost their job tomorrow and couldn't move home, how long could they survive? Mm. So we've got 120,000 minimum homeless in Australia today sleeping in cars. And the fastest growing sector of that is women over 50. Mm. So, I mean, it's my generation. And loneliness is becoming a massive mental health drama for those people. So... I think there's a chance with technology and, that, and the founders of Orange Sky Laundry, utterly brilliant millennial genius, 
realizing it wasn't about the technology and the IoT of the, of the washing machines and vans, which you'd love, Tom. It's incredible. Every device in that van, from the hot water to the washing machine to ev every single valve has an IoT device on it. So if you go to Orange Sky Laundry's site and you see the map with, with wash, with little, it's not just HTML, mate. That's real. That is a load of washing happening for a homeless person in a town near you. And they're just awesome. so smart. They're just nat natively smart using a plan, do, study, act. They're, they're lean superstars. They use data to prove everything. They are really curious. And I think that's a great place for improving access to tech is to those people. I mean, that is, a, that is an a, a incredible network. And people go, oh, but homeless people haven't got mobile phones. They've got smartphones. They don't have a plan with Spark. But they can get Wi-Fi around places. And so those, I think, are a neat way for us to just try and bridge that gap between haves and have-nots. I think, like we joke about boomers, access to technology for the elderly is going to become a massive issue. I don't know whether you watch you know, things like Black Mirror and uh, those kind of things where they, yeah, the intrusion of robots into our homes, mate, it can be for good, it can be for bad accordingly. And the ethics associated with that, they probably won't be interested in, but is a, is a, a device helpful to them? That'd be cool. Flying robot school is just one of those things where flying robots are actually drones. That's mm. some friends who've started that to give access to particularly rural Victorian and girls in particular to an engineering mindset and a multidisciplinary team mindset to solving problems. So they build their drone and they create some software and they track environmental problems with the photography and, you know, it's it's STEM by stealth. It's yep. a superb thing. We've really, that's been sorely missed in these COVID times. So whereas Orange Sky Laundry, as I'm sad to say, fellas, booming. Excellent. Well, that was going to be one of my questions around how uh, software is eating the uh, non-for-profit sector, but it sounds like you're um, just giving some really great examples there. There is, Orange Sky are a classic case where, like, it's not just taking mechanical washing machines out and washing people's clothes. It's about the connection with the people. It's about measuring that. So there, they won the Google Prize here in Australia for most, you know, incredible use of particularly software to manage the, all everything, the whole value stream from shifts. It's a complex network, donors, shifts, vans locations, partners, etc. They won a million bucks from Google and they built a light version of their platform. So it's called Volaby. And like every now, every single volunteer organization has a problem coordinating their volunteers, their donors, their customers, all those kind of things. So they went, oh, we've solved that. Maybe we could make an open source, well, open source in the sense, but you still very low fees for renting it. So the local church with a charity shop or someone organizing people to be in a place and now all the compliance elements of that you know you you've got to have, people have to have safety training etc cetera, etc cetera. so there you go a generation that just intuitively took a physical thing that they were solving and a social thing and made software to to, to solve that problem for others that we're in good hands fellas <laughs> excellent well um Thanks very much for joining us today, Nigel. And I think uh, just before we finish, I, I also noticed that potentially there's a book coming out, uh, Super Productive. It's been, been a long time coming. Um, yeah, like, my, my passion is, is productivity. I think that comes from growing up on a, a farm at Raglan and understanding like 
every day that comes by, you've got one day, you get the most out of it. I have a very particular definition of productivity. It's not lines of code, which is, of course, a lot of what softwares have dealt with, uh, the engineers have dealt with over time. It's about uh, measurable progress towards um, um, meaningful goals. So the goals have to be right. It has to cascade down from a really clear sense of where you want to be in the future. And then can you measure your progress? And that, as well as being a good definition of productivity, is a good definition of mental health. We get happiness from making progress. We don't get happiness from money or any of the other things or power that you might get as a consequence of that. But making progress every day, I think, is is really the key, absolutely. And uh, that's what the book's about. It's about, you know, the 10 things I wish I'd known 20 years ago. It feels at times a bit like a book review of all the other smart people in the world who've created it. There's 11,000 business books published every year. Do we really need 11,001? I'm not so sure, but... Uh, as long as we can kind of manage to have podcasts and various other things, a lot of information can be spread by means other than books, and we'll get there eventually. Well, you've shared a wealth of information with us today. We've talked about, you know, finding a trusted partner, uh, diversity within your teams. We've talked about total cost of ownership. Potentially is a new way we can um, use accounting formats to, to track that, that cost of, of technical debt. Uh, we've talked about being connected with your customer and, and the purpose to really bring those together. And, and we've talked about uh, watch what you put in your home. So uh, thank you very much, Nigel and Tom, for joining uh, us today on Beta and Beyond. And um, have a good day. Very good. And when we launch Orange Sky Laundry in Christchurch, I'll, I'll count you fellas in as partners, all right? So we'll have you along and... Uh... You know, I reckon some of your technology expertise and uh, their things is exactly the kind of recipe that places like New Zealand and Australia, I think, hold a, a, a really unique place in the world in bringing those things together. Lovely to meet you all. Have a great day. Thanks, Nigel. Cool. Bye. Cheers, Nigel. Thanks very much.